Good evening, everybody. How are you? So imagine that you are separated from your loved ones for years, and the only means of communication with them is through a relatively short letter. What kind of letter would it be? What would you be sure to include in that letter? My guess is you'd probably tell them that you love them. You'd let them know that you're praying for them. You'd let them know that you thank God for them. You'd commend them on the good things that you know that they're doing. You wouldn't want them to be distracted by maybe anything that you're going through. So you'd let them know that you're doing pretty well. Let them know what good things are going on in your life. And then at the end, probably just to encourage them to continue to do the things that you've praised them about, you offer some wisdom, just, just something to help keep them going. Have you ever been on the other side of a message like that? Like, I get that all day on Wednesdays before I preach, and it's really an encouragement. Pastor Kyle texts me, and as I'm coming through, my brothers will say, hey, look, I've been praying for you. Somebody even told me he fasted for me for two weeks. I don't know if he really did it or thought I really needed that kind of help, but I appreciate I appreciate that, brother. Now, hopefully you weren't lying. We're in church. So, but, but you know, because everybody has stuff going on, right? Things that take our time, our energy, and our effort. We're all dealing with something. So to know that somebody turns away from the things that they're dealing with to just drop into your life just for a little bit to tell you that they love you or that they're, they're praying about you. You feel encouraged. You're, you feel honored. I mean, really what it is, is God through other people letting, him, letting us know that, that, that he sees us and he's concerned about us. We're on his heart and that we're, we're not alone. So if you, would, if you would add those things to your letter or your heart melts when somebody drops you a line like that, then you'll agree that what we're looking at is we are right smack in the middle of the book of Philippians. I mean, we're literally in the middle of this. We're week five. This is a 10-week series you'll find that we're really in the middle of a love letter, a love letter from Paul to the Philippian church. The Philippian church was a very special church. Physically, it was the first church that was, that was planted in, in Greece. But what made it mostly special was, its, it, was its, its spirit. It was a very, very healthy church. It was a doctrinally sound church. It was a generous church. It was a church that was doing really well. Later on, it would be looked back at as a model church. And Paul knew this. And he just wanted to encourage them to continue being that, not, that model church. And he did it through a love letter. And we know it's a love letter because it's got the markings of a love letter. What we're going to see tonight later on, he calls the church my beloved. That's pretty emblematic of a love letter. But then also, we'll look through and we'll see what we've seen before is in chapter 1, he let them know that, that he, he's thinking of them, that he's praying for them, that he knows the good things that they're doing. And then tonight, we're going to look at how he encourages the church to persevere. Now, imagine the church getting a, a message like this from Paul, because Paul's situation was pretty murky, at least from, from their perspective. I mean, he's in prison, and from their perspective, he's facing death. And nonetheless, he's telling them that he loves them. He's telling them that he's concerned about them. I mean, they probably, once they got that letter, was very encouraged to read what else Paul had to say. 
So yes, Paul encouraged them by telling them that he loves them and he's praying for them and how proud he is of them. And one of the other things he did is in chapter 2, actually two things, he let them know that his situation was for the good of the, of the gospel, that it wasn't an accident and that he's doing really well. He's letting them know that the word is so powerful that it's spreading throughout the prison and outside the prison. And then he also helps them to not be discouraged by his situation by telling them that he's going to walk out of prison. He's not going to die there. So I'm sure that that was a, a heavy and distracting weight lifted off their shoulders. So again, he, he expressed his love for them, the good things that, that, that they're doing, and trying to get them to focus more on what they're doing than on, on himself. So tonight, as we read Philippians 2, 12 to 8, 18, we're going to read the whole thing, and we're going to find exactly how, what he says to encourage them and, and some things that we can take out of it from, for ourselves. So after lead, reading it all the way through, we'll go back and look at it verse by verse. But first, let's pray. Dear Lord, Father, we thank you because you are a good, good God. You love us, Father, and you show that to us every day. We thank you for this opportunity to be here tonight, Father, gathered around your word, and it is your word, Lord. I pray that I wouldn't get in the way of it, God. Speak to us collectively and individually. Father, help us to apply this, Lord, as your word tells us tonight to be shining lights, Father. Help us to do that once we walk out of here. By Jesus' name we pray and we thank you. Amen. Therefore, my beloved, as you have already obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. May God bless the reading of his word, and it is good word. So the Philippian church was a model church, but it couldn't have been a perfect church. And we know that because there were people in the church. And wherever and whenever there are people, there's imperfection. In fact, we see an issue, and it's the only issue mentioned in the Philippian church that was interpersonal. It's mentioned in chapter 14. And it's regarding a conflict between two people who were instrumental to Paul and in establishing the church and facilitating the church. Two women, one named Iodia and the other one Syntyche. Now, I don't want to disregard this issue because, you know, it was significant enough for Paul to include in a, in a letter. But considering the, the plethora of problems that, that Paul faced with the Corinthian church, these issues were relatively minor. Minor, but significant. And the reason it was significant was because it struck against one of the principles that made this church so strong, that made it a model church. It's unity. Now, it's funny because at some point, when I first started working on this, I just, you know, I was just jotting down some things. And at some point, I wrote down, the Philippian church did church well together. And I was thinking, wow, that sounds pretty cool. Then when I went back to read it, I literally said, well, duh. I mean, because it's like, 
it, as good as I guess it sounded, there's no way that a church can do well by itself. I mean, it has to do, if we're going to say it's a model church, the people in the church must be doing well together. Again, not perfect, but they've got to be united. There's no way to be a church unless it's with other people. And the church is a community of people that have professed their faith in Christ. And you can't be a community without others. So saying that a church does well means that the community of believers are generally unified, right? So, of course, they do church well together, I suppose. The Christian life cannot be lived in isolation. And our, our pastors are doing such a great job with teaching us and, and encouraging us in the fact that we are created in the image of God. And the image of God, the nature of God, is not singular. There's always been and always will be unity among the three-in-one Godhead of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And out of that image, God created Adam, not because God was incomplete or needed Adam. It's just out of his image, out of his character, he created Adam to be unified with him. And then out of that same communal quality, God created Eve to partner with Adam so that they would be united together and together united with God. And then out of that same quality, he created the church, that we would be united with Christ and together united with one another. We cannot effectively glorify God in isolation. We're, we're just not built that way. We're, we're, we're built in the image of God. Therefore, we are built to be connected with one another. So in order for the Philippian church to continue to be strong, faithful, and effective, it was going to have to persevere in unity. And through this part of the letter, Paul's encouraging them to do just that. So let's go back and, and break down each of these, these verses. Verse 12, therefore... So I didn't get very far before we start breaking it down. But therefore means in light of what happened previously, and as Doug did such a good job last week, kind of ending the section, showing that, that Paul was telling us that we need to have the same attitude that Christ had. And using what is commonly believed to be a, an old Christian hymn, Paul poetically gave us the, the character of, of Christ. And next part, my beloved. All right, three words into it so far. So now, my beloved is not a term that's used usually for any other thing besides a, a love letter. You don't go to your mailbox, pull out the envelope, open it up, and it says, my beloved, pay me or we're going to shut off your electricity. <laughs> usually it's, 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 it's pretty much a love letter when you see my beloved in it. Now, Paul's not writing this letter just to pass the time while he's holed up in a Roman prison. He's not expecting some nameless or ambiguous group to some kind of way come across this letter and, and read it at some point. This is a love letter from Paul to his brothers and sisters in Christ that, he's, that he serves so closely with in the church and that he, and, and he cares for their souls. But really through this, God is speaking to us and he calls us his beloved, which is amazing. Next part of the verse. I promise I'm going to read more than three words before I stop. As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. The ultimate indication of the sincerity of our faith is perseverance. In fact, there's a, there's a theological term regarding this point, and it's called the perseverance of the saints. Bible scholar Wayne Grudem defines it this way. 
The perseverance of the saints means that all those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives and that only those who persevere until the end have been truly born again. So if we're looking at what perseverance in the faith looks like over the course of a lifetime, what we should see is consistent, not perfect, but consistent evidence that we, that we are who we claim to be from the point that we confess Christ as our Lord and Savior all the way to our death. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that, we, that we're going to behave like mature Christians the moment that we accept Christ. And it doesn't mean that we're not going to experience some peaks and valleys during our walk. We're never going to be sinless, of course, while we're in our mortal bodies. But there should be visible evidence that we're growing in Christ over the course of our lifetime. So in this part of the verse, Paul's encouraging the church to persevere and be consistent in doing the things that they were doing when he was among them, even though now he's not. Because the environment in which the church has been thriving in up to this point has changed. Paul spent about three action-packed months when he was in Philippi. And this was during his second journey. And one of the highlights of this trip that you may remember is when the slave girl was following him and Silas around and she had the, the demon allowed her to be able to tell fortunes. So Paul cast it out of her. So it cost her, her owners a lot of money because she was pretty much worthless to them at that time. So they were a little upset. So they had Paul and Silas beaten and thrown into prison. That very night, God shook the prison opened up the, the cell doors. Now the jailer knew that he was on the hook for this, so he was getting ready to kill himself. So Paul yells out to him before he, he stabs himself. He goes, uh, don't, don't worry, hey, look, we're, we're still here. It's good, you're, you're fine. So the jailer was so moved by it that he listened to the gospel and he and his family were saved that night. So Paul had some serious gospel street cred. You know, not because of the miracles. I mean, we've seen other people in the Bible witness miracles and it not have the impact on their hearts the way that we would think. I mean, Jesus would do miracles and they'd want to kill him. And so, but, but in the hearts of believers, Paul's miracles certainly enhanced the impact of his primary mission to advance the gospel. The Philippian church got to be influenced by the power of the gospel through Paul for three months. Our pastors are amazing, all of them. But could you imagine if Paul was here for three months? And that, that would be, I mean, no offense, pastor. Just saying, you're great, but we're talking about Paul. But, <laughs> now, but at the time that Paul wrote this letter to the church, it had been somewhere between two to six years since the last time they had seen him. So naturally, the impact of his intimacy with them would, 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 would fade a little bit, right? Plus, we can imagine the feeling of isolation and discouragement that the church may have felt knowing that Paul was in prison. I mean, if he wrote this letter from a missionary field, but free, then they could at least be encouraged that maybe one day they would see him. But again, he's in a prison cell and, and he could be killed. So his, his imprisonment added gravity to the situation. Paul was confident that he would be released alive, but from their perspective, they weren't so sure perhaps. So not only was he incarcerated, they may have felt that this was kind of useless. So we have the typical pressures that a new church experienced during early years, the time that passed since Paul had been there, plus again, his last communication with them originated from the jail cell. This whole environment then in which the church operated was different than the time that he was there. And this, this change could have actually made the members different. Maybe it revealed who they really were. 
So Paul's encouraging them, in spite of what's going on during the time that he wrote this letter, to not be different than the way that he was, than the way they were when he last saw them. He's encouraging them to persevere. At the most embryonic level, he's, pers- he's, he's, he's encouraging them to be true Christians. When you think about it, there's, there's only one group of people who voluntarily and consistently listen to God's word. These are people who are intellectually in agreement with God's word. These are the people who, who God is really speaking to through the Bible and through preaching of his word. Now, there are people who, who, who may know the Bible pretty well. They may come to church every once in a while. They may read the Bible every once in a while. But they don't do it with godly intentions. Maybe they do it to find things to dispute and things to disbelieve. Or they do it to, for academic purposes. They just want to be smarter about it, but it doesn't really impact their lives. Or maybe they do it just for show. But at the end of the, of, of the day, it's not to glorify God. And the Lord isn't speaking to them. He's speaking to the group of people that intellectually believe the fundamental marks of the gospel. They believe that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They believe that because of his holiness, righteousness, and justice, sinners must be punished. They believe that God became man in the form of Jesus and all the things that we believe. They, they believe this too. But this, despite this intellectual sameness, this one group divides into, let's say, two subgroups. And each group is kind of headed in different directions. One of these groups not only intellectually agrees with the gospel, but it resonates in their hearts and changes the way that they live. They're true Christians. The other group of of those who intellectually agree with the gospel is those that, though they agree, that's about as far as it goes. They may have the, the outward trappings of sincere Christianity, but inwardly, the truth of the Bible doesn't really penetrate their hearts. So despite what they may look like, they're, they're far from God. Intellectual agreement is not enough, but the heart must be truly persuaded by the word of God. And evidence of a persuaded heart is one that lives out God's word in the days of their lives to the end of their lives, persevering in the faith. They're committed to honoring God regardless of anything. And no excuses, no exceptions. So this does bring up a good question for us. Do changes in the things around us impact our faithfulness to God? I mean, we come to church every Sunday. We come to church here on on Wednesday nights, and we're in the presence of our pastors and our other brothers and sisters in Christ, and we're looking good. Most of us are friendly. We're, We're singing. We're praying. We're saying amen to the things that are preached. We're in an environment where it's easy for us to, to display the markings of, of Christianity. But what happens when we leave? Because when we leave, we enter a different environment. We're in the world outside the church walls. So now we're confronted for real with the hypothetical scenarios that when they were mentioned in church and how we should handle them, now, now's the time to do it. So it's not, it's not practice anymore. It's not just smiling. It's actually doing it. Boxer Mike Tyson once famously said, everyone has a plan till they get punched in the mouth. So how do, we react, how do we react to the world when it punches us in the mouth and nobody's around to see us? When situations rub us the wrong way, when we're confronted by people who already demonstrate that they don't drive their cars the way that we think that they should drive, or when the environment now includes someone who doesn't share our political or social justice beliefs, 
or perhaps the most difficult situation to navigate of them all. When your neighbor at the time roots for your favorite team's rival. I've been a Dallas Cowboys fan since 1977. And no, I've never lived in Dallas. Just like most Eagles fans have never lived in Philly. But what, what's amazing was my, my, we had this television in our house that was, it, it was, it was something to behold. At the time I became a Cowboys fan, there were 28 teams in the league. Our television showed 27 other teams besides the Eagles. And it, it was great to be able to, be, to, to, to witness other players and, and see other things. And all the teams were in America, so I thought it was okay to root for a, a different team. Now, Philadelphia Eagles fans are known to be among the most passionate fan bases in the country. And most passionate fan base is a euphemism for rude and harsh. Now, there are a whole lot of things that I haven't heard about Cowboys fans. Um, different things said to me. And most of them are harmless and, and playful. But sometimes they're a little over the top. The problem was if, if someone came at me harmfully, I mean uh, playfully, I had a playful response. But if they came at me hard, I had a harder response. And it wasn't until later on, as I grew closer to the Lord, that verses like Colossians 4, 6, let your conversations always be full of grace, really took root in me. It doesn't say, let your conversations always be full of grace unless someone says something rude to you, or they say something that opposes your political views, or they say something against the team that you root for. Now, it just says conversations, meaning everything that we talk about needs to be full of grace. It says always, meaning there's no acceptable times to not be gracious. The moment we walk out of church on Sunday morning and Wednesday nights, and when we leave our home fellowships and growth groups, things change. We're, we're, we're re-entering a world where we will encounter people, even family members, who value things that are completely opposite of what we value. But we can be encouraged by this passage to be the same person outside church activities as our pastors and our brothers and sisters in Christ think we are. We can obey the things that we said amen to when we were around everybody else and live them out in this world. And we need to be encouraged by this part of Paul's love letter to persevere being the people that God has called us to be to the end of our lives. Uh, let's read the first half of verse 12 and, and all of verse 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. There's a, there's a lot going on here. And on the surface, if you read it quickly, it seems to be full of some contradictions. I mean, it says, work out your own salvation. I mean, is this intimating that we need to do something to earn our salvation when we're told that salvation is a gift and it can't be earned? And it says, we need to work out our salvation, but God does the work. So if God's doing the work, what do we need to do? And these are interesting questions. And usually in situations like this, the best way to go about them is to see what, what can't be said. So Paul's not commanding us to, to, to work out our salvation. He's, he's, he, I mean, Paul commands us to work out our salvation. He's clearly not telling us that we need to do something to earn our salvation. Now, if we want to take a shortcut to that truth, we need to look no further than the phrasing of this statement. He says, work out your salvation, not work for your salvation. Now, this seems pretty obvious, right, from us, from our perspective. But 
the belief that Paul isn't talking about earning salvation right here isn't shared by all Bible-preaching churches. I used to attend a church that believed that you could lose your salvation. Um, and they would use this verse as exhibit A. And most of us are familiar, though, with Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So in context to our study of the book of Philippians, where Paul is writing this letter from a Roman prison, later on he expressed the same truth about salvation from another Roman prison. And this time it's in 2 Timothy 1, 8, 9. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in his suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So we can definitively rule out that Paul is saying anything relative to our need to somehow earn our own salvation. So yes, this is contrary to the theology of a lot of churches that believe we have to work for our salvation and that we could lose our salvation. But suffice it to say, Green Tree and Sovereign Grace churches, as clearly stated in the Sovereign Grace Statement of Faith, hold firm that salvation can't be earned and that we can't lose it. Now back to our verse. Um, Paul uses the word work, which must mean there's something that we must do. So yes, salvation can't be earned or lost, but we aren't supposed to be passive in all this. We're supposed to be doing something. And keeping in mind Paul's message in the first half of verse 12, we need to persevere in doing whatever this something is. So exactly what is it? What are we supposed to do? We are to put, into, put in the effort to live obediently to God's every word, not to become or remain saved, but because we are saved. So this working out our salvation is about sanctification. It's, it's really about being more Christ-like. Now, unlike our salvation, we play an active role in the process of becoming more like Christ. God did all the work in our salvation, but we cooperate with God in our sanctification. He, does, he plays a role, and, and we play a role. So very briefly, let's just look at God's role in our sanctification. First, first of all, it's, under, it's important to understand that God is the driving force in the entire process. First Thessalonians reads, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. So there's nothing that's incomplete about what God's doing in our sanctification. So he does his part in sanctifying and he initiates and empowers us to do our part. Now we're not quite done verse 12 yet, but I just want to jump down for a minute to verse 13. It reads, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So it is God the Father who first called us to be sanctified. And he tells us to be holy as he is holy. Being sanctified or progressively more Christ-like is pertaining to holiness. And secondly, he gives us the desire to glorify him in the first place. Without the Lord making us want to glorify him, the thought of doing so wouldn't even cross our minds. The Father places the desire to serve him in us. So he initiates this. Jesus, God the Son, brings to fruition God the Father's desire to sanctify us by making sanctification possible in the first place. Had Jesus not died for our sins, we would not be redeemed. We would not be justified. Therefore, what would be the sense in growing in Christlikeness? We couldn't grow in Christlikeness. 
Like unbelievers, we could progressively do nicer things and become nicer people, but it wouldn't be for God's glory. And it certainly wouldn't lead to salvation. Without justification through the blood of Christ, there would be no sanctification. And also, Jesus demonstrated to us what living a sanctified life looks like. 1 Peter 2.21 reads, for, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. So Jesus didn't preach about what our lives should look like. He embodied exactly what a life fully committed to God looks like. Finally, God the, God the Holy Spirit empowers us to live a sanctified life. Galatians 5.16 reads, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So it's the Holy Spirit that produces in us characteristics that are emblematic of the sanctification process. So now, just so that there's no confusion, I explained the role of God from the perspective of the three-in-one quality of God. I just want to make sure that nobody confuses the fact that there aren't three gods, or there aren't three separate gods, or it's not one God that takes on three different forms. God is three persons, each person is fully God, and there is only one God. And there, there's no analogy or word tricks or, or pictures that we can come up with that really helps to explain this. As the saying goes, it just, it is what it is. Though each person has a different role in creation, salvation, and sanctification, there's only one God. So let's look at our role in sanctification. Now, I spent, when I was putting all this together, way more time than necessary trying to find the right verse or a couple of verses that demonstrated our role in sanctification. But it was like if you open up the New Testament and point to any verse, basically there goes something that we need, we need to do. But the verse, at least to me, that speaks most to the our role in sanctification occurs in, in the Old Testament, in Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Now, a new Christian may need more explanation about this verse, but a person who's been around God's word for a while, if they're still asking, what should my life look like? They really need to do some introspection. My guess, my hope, is that there's nobody in that boat here tonight, that we may struggle to live out God's word in certain aspects of our lives, but we ought to know what we should be doing, right? In short, we need to be living our lives in full commitment and obedience to the Lord and consistently engaging in all the things that he's given us to, to draw nearer to him, immersing ourselves in his word, attending church, praying, but very importantly, just living it out, practicing living it out. We are to do these things, according to the rest of verse 12, with fear and trembling. That seems to be contradictive in a little bit even unreasonable in light of what God tells us about himself in the word. So how can Paul tell us to fear God? And this is the same God who tells us in verses like Isaiah 41, 13, for I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Doesn't seem like there's a lot to be afraid of there. So we can rule out that Paul is telling us to go through living our lives in fear towards God in the sense that we're afraid of failure or his heavy hand if we fall short or losing our salvation if we mess up. But Paul is urging us to not get this twisted. 
We serve a great and all-powerful God who is not to be trifled with. He's not the big guy upstairs. You know, he's not this heavenly, this, this benevolent grandfather who says, you know what, you're pretty good, especially compared to everybody else. When you get to the pearly gates, St. Peter will let you in. No, no, not at all. We are to serve God and engage in the activities that help us grow more in Christ-likeness with reverence for a holy and powerful and just God that has chosen, he's chosen, he didn't have to do it, he's chosen to lavish us with his grace and mercy. So the trembling part of the verse means to be enthusiastic and vibrant and focused as we uphold our responsibilities in the sanctification process. We're not to be lackadaisical or complacent or, or stoic. Now, we don't need to make a great big show of our excitement in the Lord beyond our natural way of showing excitement for anything else. That's just kind of annoying and pointless. But a good question is, however we demonstrate excitement and enthusiasm, are we as excited and enthused about the things of God as we are about other things in our life that excites us? You know what excites me? After church on Sunday, getting home, and usually every week I make some kind of pulled something, pulled pork, pulled beef, getting a nice sandwich like that, getting some chips, and sitting down in front of the television and watching the Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> Hasn't been so fun lately, but it's still my team. We are to fulfill our role in sanctification, keeping in mind the greatness of God and strive to honor him joyfully. Now, joyfully doesn't necessarily mean happily. And excitement and enthusiasm doesn't mean pumped up. So I say this because I don't want to give the impression that unless we're happy or, or pumped up every time we sit down to pray or come to church or um, study the Bible, we're not getting anywhere or we're being hypercritical. Because there's going to be times when we're tired. There's going to be times when we're not feeling well and distracted or disappointed or anything else that makes us not feel like doing anything. But persevering to do those things anyway to the best of our ability at that time that we do them is all part of working out our salvation. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So not only does God empower us to work out our salvation, it is he who makes us want to do it in the first place, as I mentioned earlier. So this goes back to the free gift of salvation that we read about in Ephesians 2.9 and 2 Timothy 1.8.9. We did not come to God by our own will. I mean, if we're being honest, our will was to run away from God as hard and as fast as we could. Without God making us want to come with it to him, we just, we simply wouldn't be here. Also, without God working in our hearts to want to work out our salvation, we, we just simply wouldn't, wouldn't do it. So when it comes to our role in sanctification, it's actually God doing all the heavy lifting. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now what's interesting here is in the Greek language, the language in which Paul wrote this letter, Paul uses the same word that translates to grumbling and disputing that was used to describe the type of grumbling and disputing that the Israelites did to Moses while they wandered the wilderness in the book of Exodus. They were being stubborn through what's called rhetorical questioning. For instance, in Exodus 17:3, they said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt? To kill us and, and our children and our livestock with thirst? Why did you bring us here to kill us? They weren't like, seriously, Moses, we, we want to be edified. 
so that we can serve you better. Can you tell me what's going on? They weren't interested at all in, in Moses' response. These aren't questions seeking clarification or direction. They're passive-aggressive statements to express their dissatisfaction with Moses, thus their dissatisfaction with God. Then Paul is telling the members of the Philippian church, and God is telling us through this letter, to simply not be like that. Don't do things that impede and undermine the authority of the church leaders. Now, this doesn't mean that we, that we can't question things that we don't understand, but we're to do it constructively, truly seeking to be edified so we can better serve and support the church. Uh, first part of verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish. Now, this verse points back to the Israelites in the verse in Exodus that I just mentioned. Because of their murmuring, most of the Israelites died in the desert within the 40 years in which they, they wandered. Their complaining was a verbal testimony of what was in their hearts, which was a lack of faith in God. And we're told in the New Testament, it's the same thing that's also true in the Old Testament. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, and they had no faith. Those Israelites were not what we're told to be in Philippians 2.15, blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. Because of, because of their faithlessness, God, I gotta be always careful there because I'm always, I tend to say faithfulness, and that would give you the wrong impression. Because of their faithlessness, God treated them justifiably harshly. I said faithlessness, right? Okay. Believers in Christ are not blameless and innocent by our own efforts. We're made blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, only by one thing, faith in Jesus Christ. So what we see in verse 15 is Paul essentially telling us that unlike the Israelites who demonstrated their lack of faith in God by their complaining, we are to demonstrate our faith by not complaining. The rest of the verse, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in this world. I find myself saying this most times that I, that I teach. As Christians, we need to live our lives in such a way that it demands explanation. People need to question, why do we do what we do? Or why do we not do what we don't do? Romans 12, 2 reads, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The pattern of this world is to grumble and dispute about everything. Paul says a crooked and twisted generation. Now, typically when we hear the word generation, we we're probably tend to think about people that are born within the same um, time frame. And each generation is said to have its own characteristics. Baby boomers are dedicated workers who value visibility. Generation Xers are independent and well-educated individuals. Millennials is a collective and impact-oriented generation. What's interesting is, the, anybody know what the current generation is called? Generation Alpha. So my daughter was trying to explain this to me the other day because sometimes I'm a little too literal. Alpha means first, right? So then doesn't this sound like it's a generation born late or should have figured out that it's got to be a different word. What she told me was that they're running out of Roman numerals, so now they're starting all over. So I guess the next generation is Generation Beta. But anyway, one thing I know what it's going to be known for is to have chronic thumb injuries and neck problems from being like this all the time. <laughs> but 
Now, as different as each generation is from the others, one of the commonalities is they were all complainers. And we know that because that's just what people do. It's in our DNA. Although grumbling and disputing about anything is never good, what Paul is talking about specifically here is complaining about church leaders. And our pastors didn't put me up to saying this, by the way. So, but if you want to buy me lunch or something, that would be good. But, but it's, it's, it's the truth. But this principle of not complaining carries over to everything. You know, people complain or murmur or grumble um, or any way that you want to put it. They've been doing it since the history of man. And when you think about the first complaint, it was pretty much a doozy. Adam complained to God directly about God and Eve. So that's a complaint level that will never, ever be topped. But we haven't gotten far from that. We still complain. So when Paul uses the word generation, he's not talking about the characteristics of people born within certain timelines. He's referring to a community of people in regard of what they do, which is grumble and gripe. So regardless of what era they were born in. But by not complaining, we certainly stand out. You know, somebody would say, you know what? I never hear you complain about fill in the blank about whatever anybody complains about. Why? Talk about an opportunity to explain ourselves. And we will certainly shine as lights in the world for God's glory by simply not complaining or grumbling, by just not talking, not responding the way that the world responds. That makes us shine as lights. Verse 16, holding fast to the, world, to the word of life. Now this is reemphasizing the original point of persevering in our faith. Paul's encouraging us to be diligent and steadfast in living out what we believe, no matter what. So that in the day of Christ, which is the day that we will stand before him, either at the end of our life or at the end of time when he returns to earth. Next part of the verse is, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Meaning that, that Paul is, meaning the work that Paul put into growing and nurturing the faith of the, of, of the readers of this letter would not end up amounting to nothing. His hope was that in the day of Christ, the Lord would not say to any of them, I never knew you, depart from me. Paul needed to be, Paul needed to, to be concerned that though some of the readers may have intellectually and, physio, and, and philosophically believed that he, what he preached, it really didn't take root in their hearts. He's trying to wake them up. He's encouraging them to be what they were created to be. Verse 17 and 18. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, Upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I pointed out a couple weeks ago that, that Paul is confident that his current situation is not going to result in his death. However, right now, as he makes this statement, he's looking further down the road. He's saying that if he is to be put to death one day for nurturing people's perseverance in the faith, it won't be a sad occasion. Now, just be, a little bit before writing this letter, he wrote in chapter 123, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. So he's encouraging and inviting his readers to, to, to not be sad or discouraged if he's, to, if he's to lose his life, 
because of furthering the gospel, but to celebrate with him. And about nine years later, he was executed. In another Roman prison, Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 4, 6 to 7, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. He's using the same language he used um, in, the, in the passage tonight. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul persevered to the end and poured his life into helping to encourage the church to do the same thing. When all is literally said and done, all that will matter is whether or not we're found in Christ. Nothing more, nothing less. And I don't think it's a stretch to believe that the heart of everyone here tonight believe that truth. I know that because it's Wednesday night. And you could be doing something different. A lot of other options. But you're here. And if you knew that I was speaking, I'd give you double compliments. But this resonates to you. So that means most of us here tonight fall into yet again two groups. Perhaps from the moment you accepted Christ, you never questioned the sincerity of your faith. You feel that you've diligently worked out your salvation and you've grown and matured in your unity with Christ. And I'll be honest with you, I kind of struggled whether or not I was going to go over this part tonight for a couple of weeks. And this morning, during my devotional, I ended up reading a testimony by a gentleman who graduated Bible school, moved from where he lived all his life to somewhere else to serve the Lord, and ended up questioning his faith. I'm going, I guess I need to talk about this tonight. So maybe at some parts of, of some points in your life, as you walked with the Lord, you wondered about the sincerity of your faith, like that gentleman I read about. And perhaps a message like this kind of stirs up some of those doubts in you. And maybe it's the enemy or the guilt of, of sinful nature or some, some inclinations that make you wonder about the true confession of your faith. Philippians 2, 12 to 18 serves as a love letter and a letter of encouragement to both groups. If you're in the first group, confident in the sincerity of your faith, rejoice and be encouraged by this love letter to persevere in growing in faith and knowledge, being the person that God has called you to be no matter what and living out what you believe. You can rest in the assurance that the Lord is doing his part in empowering you to do your part in the sanctification process. Remember, he's doing the heavy lifting. You have a part, but he's driving it. If there's anybody here tonight who's in that other group, you're going, you know what, I really don't know. I might be in that other group. I, might, I, I may not be a Christian. You too can be encouraged as well. Because if the Holy Spirit wasn't working in you, you wouldn't question the sincerity of your faith. You wouldn't have the ability to. You wouldn't even give it a thought. You can't question what you don't have. If you don't have faith, there's just nothing to question. You wouldn't be able to even rightly think about salvation. Your sensitivity is brought on by the Holy Spirit living in you, who only resides in true believers. So you are a true believer. So therefore, rejoice. And be assured that your faith is genuine. But now, work out your salvation with God to repent of whatever gives root to your doubt. Pray about it. Speak to other people about it. Don't go to bed on it. 
And you too can be assured that the Lord is doing his part and will empower you to do your part. Our call is to persevere in working out our salvation. That's what this part of the letter is all about. That we may shine as lights in the world, glorifying God and encouraging and supporting others as they work out their faith for the glory and honor of God. Remember the impact that this word is having on you. And remember the impact that you can have on someone else just by saying, I love you. Just by saying, hey, I'm thinking about you. By sending a text saying, hey, I know you're speaking tonight. I'm praying for you. It's God speaking to you into the heart of someone else. Maybe speaking to somebody who doesn't know where they really stand with the Lord kind of questions it. Through, Paul, through Paul's love letter to the Philippian church, which is really God's love letter to us, let's be encouraged and rejoice that we can be the people that he's created us to be to the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.